Welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I am joined by Michael Koreski. Um, oh, you want to know who I am? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I need some preparation for these things. Um, well, I am currently the director of publications at the Metrograph Theater. Um, I have been the staff writer at the Criterion Collection for the last 10 years, and now I'm a contributing writer. And um, I am a contributor to Film Comment Magazine, including an article about the series we're going to be talking about today. Excellent. Uh, Manuel Bentoncourt. I am a uh, part-time copy editor here at Film Comment and a, a contributor. Um, and I'm a freelance writer here in New York City, and I focus on queer cinema. Yeah. Uh, Mark Harris. I'm a film historian and journalist focusing on film and TV and a columnist for Vulture. Excellent. Well, thank all three of you for coming. And we're going to be discussing this kind of historic I think it is a historic series. Um, Queer Cinema Before Stonewall, which was programmed by Thomas Beard, programmer at large here at the Film Society Lincoln Center. And what I think is unique about the series, and he's spoken about this, is that, um, or Thomas Beard has spoken about this, is that it takes, you know, it's taking both mainstream cinema, experimental cinema, silent cinema, and in some cases recontextualizing, in other cases sort of linked by a queer theme and it, it representations of gayness before, um, you know, the landmark uh, Stonewall uprising, not very well represented in the movie Stonewall that recently came out. So um, <laughs> if we could, and we don't, and we're not going to talk about that, so that's fine. We're not? I thought, I thought that's why we were here. Oh, no. I thought, that, I thought this was about cinema pre the movie Stonewall, <laughs> because everything's changed. It's true. <laughs> I think it would be nice to sort of start off by talking about... Um, how these films are, they're doing something different. We're sort of being asked to do something different in terms of considering character. You know, we're not, we're not always being asked to identify with these characters. We're not, uh, these, how desire functions in these films. And also how the experimental work is really in direct conversation with, um, and even the documentary work is in direct conversation with very, mainstream Hollywood cinema, but also very much opposing it, subverting it, etc. Well, I, I was interested that you used the word um, recontextualizing as, as uh, a door into our relationship with these movies, because when I was watching a couple of them or rewatching a couple of them, I, I realized that like more than many movies, these movies absolutely demand that you understand the world that they came from and the audience that was seeing them and the attitudes of the people who were making them and not in some kind of condescending you know oh isn't it funny that 50 or 80 or 100 years ago people had these attitudes about gay people but like you you can't understand these movies uh including the more recent ones i think without understanding what the world was like and one film that really came to mind for me was uh this movie who killed teddy bear with salminio where there is some a little bit of overtly uh, gay content in that there's a, a sort of slightly codified lesbian character played by Elaine Stritch, who, you know, the second she is identified as such, she meets the fate that lesbians are still regularly meeting in movies and TV shows. So you can talk about the gay content of that movie in terms of her, but... There is this whole separate gay content of the movie, which is the fact that Sal Mineo stars in it and is like photographed lavishly and erotically, shirtless in an, in like a basically a speedo style bathing suit. I mean, the the eroticization of him, even though that character is not supposed to be gay, is as kind of meaningful in terms of being gay content as the Elaine Stritch storyline is. <laughs> And it's funny how we take that in retrospectively, knowing later that Salminio was gay. They didn't know this in 1965 necessarily. People in the know, I assume, knew. But audiences didn't. The New York gay audience that might have sought out this 
movie, which was basically an indie that was all shot on, I mean, it's a crime drama, but it's an indie that's all shot on New York locations, and, and you get a great look at what CD New York City in 1965 was like. Um, Sal presence would have meant one thing to them that was very different than what a you know, moviegoer who had no idea would have seen it. And it's interesting how um, the movie at one point just kind of stops f- for a workout, a sweaty workout scene. It's like a physique <laughs> pictorial, which some, yeah. of, some of which are in the series as well. Um, and it's funny how I, you see that a lot through a lot of the films that are in the series, uh, movies that deal with the desire by just showing the object of desire on screen. It doesn't really take into account who, if anyone else on screen is enjoying it, it has to do with the pleasure of the person watching it. This, the, this, this um, imagined probably gay male spectator in the audience. There's, there's a, there's, this is through a lot of the avant-garde films that are in the series. This is from the mainstream films in the series. And it's funny how that, you can, you can chart the connection from Blood of a Poet all the way to Who Killed Teddy Bear in that way, too. And I think this movie gets what having Salminio shirtless means. <laughs> you know, there were lots of shirtless guys in 1965 movies, but it was like Kirk Douglas still, you know, and, and the, the camera was like completely oblivious to any eroticism that that skin might convey. And usually the shirtless guy was oblivious to it as well. And Salminio knows what, Salminio looks like, you know, without his shirt on, which, by the way, was hot. And uh, fact. Yes, we need to add that to this conversation. This is this is appealing looking. This this is not. Yeah. He was hot, um, and not like 1965 hot, 2016 hot. Um, Eternal. Uh, <laughs> He, he talked about uh, how he had to shave his chest for that part because chest hair was considered vulgar. Um, oh, I so. think the word is vulgar. Vulgar, right. <laughs> A-H. Um, but uh, the camera gets that he's hot, which is a really kind of unusual thing about that movie. So you don't think any of the guys that were on the set of Spartacus were in on it? You don't because I mean just watch the try and watch that movie with the sound off even though it's been butchered and you're just like oh my god another bathhouse scene well the, <laughs> the Romans the, there, there's that famous story that Gore Vidal uh, for Ben Hur told Total. Stephen Boyd you know your this relationship that you're enacting with Charlton Heston is erotic and he has no idea of it and let's keep it that way so you play it as erotic he can play it as oblivious. Um, and it's really funny to watch the, that scene in that context. The, the other thing, and I guess sort of going off from there that I found fascinating is sort of seeing all these films collected together was that, Violet, you pointed out that there's a, it's sort of pushing us away from thinking of identity and identification. And I think what we're describing, um, sort of in talking about Salminiu and shortlessness and sort of this desire that pervades uh, the screen in so many of these films, is more of a sensibility that is being presented and wanted to be acknowledged by the audience. So what I found myself also doing is like tracing and tracking these different uh, films that then have a very interesting conversation. So, you know, watching uh, Machin in uniform uh, next to, you know, Tea and Sympathy and Vincent Minnelli, which exist on such different registers. But these are two films about, you know, the homosocial space that deal with these idea of, you know, same-sex desires always dealing to these, like, sad suicidal fates. And that that would be what we would normally pick on. But there is a sense of, uh, of hope, uh, of a romanticized vision of this same-sex desire that's sort of still pushing through, not necessarily or not just in subtext, uh, but also in these like beautiful faces and these beautiful close-ups uh, and sort of these these admiring gazes that we see all throughout. Yeah, and I think that um, leads to a really important part of this conversation, which would be, you know, this idea of Stonewall as being this very strict demarcation point. You know, this series is called queer cinema before Stonewall, meaning that there must be this one thing that completely separates what before and after means. Of course, that's not true. I mean, this is, that's not a way of criticizing the series, but of... Well, I think, but of, I, I mean, Thomas has sort of like acknowledged that and like, and, and I think it's interesting. Without a doubt. Oh, yeah. oh exactly. Yeah. Thomas is, Thomas Beard, I don't know if he mentioned, who is the uh, program at large mm-hmm. at the Film Society yeah. and who is the programmer of this series. Yes. And he was working on this series for many years and it's a, a fantastic series. Um, he has acknowledged this and it's, it's important to create these, these kind of vague, wide historical um, boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. But at the same time, I, I think of Stonewall as more of a state of mind than, yeah. a, than an actual historical point. Right, because I, th- I mean, if you look at a f- uh, documentary like The Queen, 
it's about this uh, national drag competition that takes place in New York City, and it's um, it's very funny, and it's also like you and you see like these you know the, these uh, men are having very frank conversations, and they you know they're making they make very clear distinctions between you know I'm not trans, you know if I had the money I would not have this I would not get surgery to become a woman, and here is why, and just being and then also being like well my mother loves me for who I am, my mother just doesn't want to talk about it. just having very and this like even referring to you know my boyfriend, my husband, and using these terms where it's like. They're so comfortable in a way that it seems almost, I don't know, decades ahead of time. But then there's also, to watch a documentary like that, there's also, I found myself being very like anxious and sort of sad because it's like, well, what happened to these men? You know, this, is this I think it was 1967, this film was shot and it's like, well, there's still there's still AIDS. There's still like all, and there's still all of the violence that, you know, queer and trans people face that is ahead and so it's like but, as comfortable as these men are it's like what is coming in the you know it's what's but coming you can in see the, the exact same thing about word is out which is yes. a definitely a post stonewall movie made mm-hmm. in 77 i believe a great documentary um that just sits with a lot of people in san francisco gay people um i think there was i think there are, are there trans people in that film just gay and lesbian no. Gay and lesbian, and they're talking about their lives, and and that itself is a very radical move. They're just talking about their lives, mm-hmm. but um, who's to say that in form or in spirit that's really a pre or post Stonewall film? Because everything you're saying about the Queen could be said about that. Well, what Absolutely. comes next? The yeah. '80s are coming, right? And I think one thing it's easy to forget when you're looking at um, LGBT history, uh, and that these movies, this programming, really reminds us of is that in the movies frankness did not proceed along exactly the same timeline as enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So you see, particularly in the 60s, movies kind of first tentatively and then aggressively getting more and more explicit about what they're actually about. You go from a movie like Tea and Sympathy in, in 1956, which is a film that's literally incomprehensible if you don't know what it's secretly about. I mean, like, Teens of these is based on a play that itself has, like, backwards and completely made up psychological explanations for what homosexuality is and how to cure it. And the movie adaptation removes any mention of homosexuality so that something is trying to be cured, like shyness or... or Wait, or, the, um, the, the euphemism is that he's not a regular boy. Right. He's a, uh, I think they call him a sister, sister boy. boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but but there's no hint in the movie that that might involve attraction to other men. It's mm-hmm. just conveyed as like doing femi stuff like sewing and not wanting to play sports, right. um, which apparently can both be cured by sleeping with an older woman, which is also not explicit in the movie, you know, and for which the older woman has to apologize 10 years later in a postscript that was invented for the movie. So it's like, what the hell is this? It is like watching a movie about life on Mars, but like that itself is, is really fascinating. But then 10 years later, you can have gay characters, lesbian characters in movies to a degree, but they're treated often either brutally or with a kind of forensic curiosity. Like when you look at something like The Killing of Sister George, which I think is a fascinating movie, and I think might chronologically be the the latest movie in this program. It's 1968. You know, it's about lesbians. And, I mean, I found it like not ungenerous to them, but at the same time, it's this... It absolutely conveys this idea that they live in like embittering sham marriages and that their attempts to create a kind of normative life for themselves will only end up as being grotesque, which was absolutely like you could have found that attitude on the front page of the New York Times at that time. But it is more blunt than anything you would have seen just. 10 years earlier in in at least acknowledging that lesbians exist. Well, that's, I mean, that's, and that's a big debate that goes on, right? The, is visibility enough to recoup these films? This is the debate about cruising. Uh, Cruising is a film that is not in the series because it was made in 1980, but, you know, how do we really categorize it? Um, And it's a film that's been um, recouped by a lot of contemporary gay critics. 
uh, like Nathan Lehman, Ledson Anderson, and a lot of really, really smart people. It's never been a favorite of mine, um, but it is certainly something to reckon with, yeah. and it's something that is unlike any other film that's ever been made, uh, certainly in a, a mainstream context. Right. Um, but it's really interesting to ask that question of a lot of these things, and Killing of Sister George is a, is a good example. It's, it's a fascinating movie by virtue of never having seen these these people on screen before. It becomes this great, fascinating object. But what is it really saying ultimately that's a, like the cigar chewing moment i mean that th that could have happened between a straight couple i mean it, it's just about power games right. but there's a certain kind of sadomasochism that the movie seems to attribute to lesbianism in that film it's right. kind of undeniable and, and that thinking that all gay relationships were about um power games is something you see like straight through the 1960s um yeah. i mean in 68 in particular there were a lot of movies like uh rod steiger and the sergeant the the fox the dh lawrence adaptation i mean it's it's there's all this tension about you know it's a kind of touristic way of both looking at these relationships and saying they're essentially perverted because they a relationship between two people of the same sex always has to be ultimately a relationship about power or a warped relationship about, um, like the warping of a relationship about uh, parenting and being a child. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to be one of those two things. Yeah. And then the other film that we could talk about that, that is in the in the series that also speaks to the sort of perversity uh, is obviously Hitchcock's Rope, yep. which has also been, it's hard to recuperate or it's hard to sort of talk about without invoking uh, the other flip side of the coin, which is, you know, if they're not just victims and sad people and suicidal, then they're perverse to this uh, criminal. Uh, sort of degree. So how do we look at this couple? How do we look at this relationship, which is perverted, which is all about uh, sort of destroying uh, normalcy and normativity and the heterosexual paragon of that, uh, which is David, and still see it talking about uh, issues of desire and issues of form, which I think is the, the other way in which um, sort of certain of these other films then get recuperated by saying, well, it's not visibility and it's not presentational, but look how same-sex desire sort of warps cinema itself and sort of helps us sort of push us forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point about rope. And I was thinking about rope when you were talking about teen sympathy, just about how everything is a code, everything can't be spoken. These are two of the only like real Hollywood films of, of that era, like the post-war era through the late fifties. I think there's there's, real, there's only only a couple, um, and it, well, they, we could add cat on a hot tin roof. Yes, which is not I mean included included in the series, oh, yeah, but yeah, 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 for, yeah. for sure. Um, but what's interesting, uh, what like you were saying about teen sympathy, regardless of how nothing can be spoken they still had to add this crazy coda yeah. where it, it it has to underline that oh yes no he's married now and oh he's she and, she, and she she writes this crazy like 10 page letter to reaffirm that a woman who finds sexual uh, pleasure has to be outcast from society i mean the end of teen sympathy the film is crazy none of that was in the play although the um, hilarious thing is also, the whole framing device of Tea and Sympathy now, which is a 27-year-old or 28-year-old man wandering through the rooms of high school boarding school students, <laughs> is like more shocking than anything else in the movie. That's true. I mean, and, and I must say, I really love that movie because regardless of the history of it and the things that it doesn't say and how weird it is and how it's completely unreadable, it's actually this beautiful empathetic work regardless i mean it's 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 truly minnelli truly does something because of the minnelli was a gay director right. he gets at something true and genuine there and and the and the the technicolor and the photography the the cinemascope they all contribute to this kind of broad sense of um like i was saying just empathy just a kind of this this love of people which you don't really get in a lot of movies of that type um but yeah, that just reminds me of Rope, too, which is that you have this, everything is so heavily coded that you can't really read it. And it was a fascinating, um, this great scholar, D.A. Miller, wrote this this great essay. Yeah, Anal Rope. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> it's an I mean, he's an incredible writer. But one of the things he talks about is how when Truffaut was interviewing Hitchcock, he, Hitchcock kind of disavows the film, but whatever. Um, the technique of it, rather. And Truffaut describes the film very nonchalantly as being about two homosexuals murder murder a third person and then throw a dinner party. And it, but he just says two homosexuals. Like, it's a matter of course. It's a matter of fact. But you can't actually grasp that directly if you're watching the film. It's obviously 
a point and it's obviously subtext and it's obviously what the film is about but it's never stated so it's funny for that to be in this in this basic synopsis of the film and rope is like that nothing nothing about queerness or gayness is actually stated it's all something that you have to infer and that was just how it was and the hard thing to guess is like audiences in 1949 when Rope came out were better at inferring that stuff than we are because yes. they had to do it more. So, so you know, we can we can look at this movie and say it's never stated, but we, what we don't know is really whether an average, say, New York City moviegoer would have walked out of Rope, uh, you know, 67 years ago and said, well, obviously, of course they were lovers, you know, because the same way that... Um, People who went to westerns knew that dance hall hostesses were madams, you know, <laughs> and and performers in saloons were hookers. You know, they they may have known that these these effete, intellectual, highly strung, which was code, you know, right. sensitive men were gay. I like. Is it wrong that I find the stuff in Rope much more forgivable, for instance, than the stuff in Cruising? I mean. You know, they, no, I agree I, with you. Hitchcock I, thought everybody was a murderer, so yeah. you know, I'm, I'm glad that that two gay guys got to be murderers in one of his movies <laughs> too. It was like you know, equal equal time. Well, it's also based on a true story, <laughs> right? It plays Vaguely, Globe yes. and, yeah. and and other you know murder cases. But for me, like a movie like that is more consistent with Hitchcock just fascinated by sexuality and darker sides of human nature, mm-hmm. going into another. Mm-hmm you know room in that mansion of his yeah because it's Um, not because in cruising it's like the guy's pathological because of his homosexuality (laughs) or as far as i remember it's it's much it's i think the line between murderous intent and sexuality is much clearer there well he also has is he also has serious mother issues yeah and he also prefers to kill men by stabbing them in the back when he ties them up and puts them face first into a pillow it's very very directly about yeah and yeah. homosexuality and the, and like the knife penis. Right, I mean, right. It's prescient about something which is that people would start to equate homosexuality with disease. Like yeah. like the Al Pacino character becomes infected with this this yeah. pulsing nightlife that you know, and this was pre AIDS. Um mm-hmm. it's unfortunately what it's prescient about is an incredibly terrible and bigoted attitude that would soon take hold i'm i'm not a fan of the movie but i love nathan lee's writing on it and, oh, yeah. and you know it's it's a fascinating one to if for nothing else the documentary aspect where right. it's like you it's this again like really on the cusp of the aids epidemic you see this last little gasp of nightlife like what it was like to be in the meatpacking district and like actual you know right and that's vivid and and not you know completely inaccurate yeah you know it's um billy friedkin got that right but. but for for people to for people to look at it only in those terms it's becomes so fetishistic and that's yeah. that's okay because the movie's about fetish itself i suppose <laughs> but it, it really is a way of reducing it and kind of excusing oh, it for everything oh, totally. yeah. and and um and i feel yeah i feel that way about a lot of uh, certainly the way a lot of straight people talk about gay culture. I mean, look at the way, look at James Franco's fetishizing of it, for example. We don't have to yeah. go down that route, but that, that um, what's it called? Interior Leather Bar. Yeah. The, 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 this idea, this the, the mythology around the film and these like supposed 20 minutes that were cut and um, as this impetus for this kind of failed art project, mm-hmm. I just, it kind of revealed, I think, how a lot of hetero people look at that kind of culture and how they have this weird envy or Franco's oeuvre at large. <laughs> the worst sentence He's in not included in this, in this series. Uh, I, I can't pick on him. I think of him as a kind of interested ally. Okay. Very interested ally. But um, <laughs> <laughs> shockingly interested ally. Um, but Intimations, I, yes. I, I wanted to bring up one movie in this series that I really love um, that I think is kind of out of sync with what we've been talking about, which is Victim. Yes. Um, an early '60s movie uh, with uh, Dirk Bogart in it, and it's a—it's not an American movie; it's a British movie, and that's important because it has to do specifically with some British laws uh, about homosexuality yes. and blackmail and things like that. But um, it stands out because, as far as it goes, it's really quite a sympathetic uh, picture of these guys. Um, you know, sympathetic 
circa 1961. It's obviously no one no one should go expecting to see a 2016 attitudes reflected in this movie but the movie acknowledges the basic humanity of these characters the terrible bind that they're caught in and in a few scenes the notion that there is a community of these people that they all know who they are and talk and they have their own way of talking to each other that was super unusual like you would not have seen that in an american studio movie uh of 1961 yeah no i agree i mean victim is a film that um is considered a, a real benchmark, obviously. But I think, um, and and I, I remember growing up and being interested in gay cinema and trying to figure out what were the ones I should see and what's what's the earliest gay. I would let's see. I look at the years and I'd say, well, this one is 1961. I, I remember looking at like TLA catalogs or things like that and trying to figure out which movies um, were the ones worth seeing and and what they meant historically. And that one always stood out. And I remember finally seeing it. I think I was in my. Uh, in my in late, my late teens, and being very disappointed, you know, as a <laughs> as a young curious, you know, yeah. gay curious uh, teen, it was still so grim, and it was it was so focused on the more closeted aspects of his life, and he was married, and everything about him that was gay was kind of pushed off to the side. And it was the thing that he was trying to hide. So I didn't see, I didn't understand at the time, well, I, it's like I thought this was supposed to be about pride. I thought this was supposed to be the first coming out film. And if you look at it that way, yeah, it's very, it's, it's disappointing. But if you put it in the context, like you were saying, all these movies have to be watched in context. It's absolutely fascinating. And Terrence Davies said, somebody, sorry if I always go back to Terrence Davies, we'll probably talk it's about him again. Um, he said that when he saw this film as a, uh, as a teenager, when it because it, it opened in Liverpool back in 1961, it was like everything came falling down. It was um, it must have been so shocking to, for people to see that at the time. Yeah, it's just impossible to recreate uh, a sense of newness. You know, the idea that these movies were reaching audiences that you know because if someone in 1961 had been going through a non-existent catalog trying to find mm -hmm. the gay movies from the past that he could learn something from or she could learn something from they would have been like the movies that were passed along from generation to generation were things like all about eve and johnny guitar mm -hmm. and mildred pierce and movies with no actual gay content where where whatever gay content there was was so deeply encoded either in style gestures or in casting sometimes right. that, that that was the only thing to read. So yeah. something like Victim was a, a huge leap forward yeah. for it. Maybe we can use that um, that discussion of codes to turn towards uh, some of the experimental work like Flaming Creatures, which is all about those. Obviously, the the one of my favorite, I mean, that movie's amazing, but one of my favorite moments from the film, of course, is when the lipstick and the fake lipstick ad and it shaped the lipstick shapes your lips as you put it on. Does it, does it stay on if you suck a dick? Well, it's indelible. <laughs> <laughs> this lipstick is indelible. Just like the movie. Yes, exactly. Well, I think what, one of the things, uh, and this sort of gets to what uh, I think you want us to talk about, which it's this idea of like what we expect these films to show us. Uh, and I think uh, when we look at mainstream cinema, and I think we've sort of been uh, sort of trained to think of LGBT cinema as being about pride, right? as being about sort of visibility. And what I love about revisiting all of these underground films is they're, they're so unabashedly about flaunting a pride that you would never want to, or that we are also trained not to celebrate, right? These like exuberant bodies, or I'm thinking it's like Jean Genet's uh, Chant d'Amour, which is also like beautiful and fascinating, but it's about sort of sexual exuberance given to the nth degree, and then it's not something that you would be able to show teens these days who are looking for <laughs> pride images or images of, about sort of what they are trying to examine, but taps into uh, sort of sexual desire and its very essence and all of those like beautiful bodies. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that, and, and then Enchanted Moore, which is maybe my favorite movie in, in the series. Um, it's a half hour. It's John Janet's only film. It's fascinating. It's still sexy. It's still shocking. It's amazing. 1950. But interesting, all the things you said about it is exuberant and it's liberating, but you forgot to mention it takes place in a jail. Yes. So yes. it's all it's all about exuberance despite limitations, despite, you know, literally these people, um, these men can't leave. <laughs> they're they're trapped and they're trying to communicate through holes and through windows and by touching each other and by blowing smoke 
cigarette smoke th- and through straws through through um the holes between their cells being washed by guards who are you know wielding their batons and they, they grab their batons um but I think that that's a good way into all of these, the more experimental films, which are in the series, the films that are about liberation, because these are films that were made away from the prying eyes of censors and away from mainstream audiences' shocked eyes. And um, so they could kind of do whatever they wanted. So that's where you see the real liberation here. Um, flaming creatures, obviously. And, and, and Gregory Markopoulos' is Twice a Man is, is um, not quite like those in form, but just because the form itself is so radical, it actually feels like it's bursting out of its um, entrapment. Yeah, I mean, and I would also urge people who are going to see these movies to try hard to leave their contemporary definitions of either pride or liberation at the door, or, or at least not to use those as the only benchmarks of why a film can be valuable or interesting. Because if you look at... For instance, uh, you know, the Andy Warhol movie, My Hustler, mm-hmm. or Portrait of Jason. I don't find them happy or joyful movies, but I do find them absolutely real. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's, it's a thrilling thing to realize that in 1966 or 1967, someone with a camera was able to open a window on, like, uh, w- when, I'm, when I'm watching Portrait of Jason, I'm looking at someone who is occasionally, you know, self-delusional, is portrayed in some ways as, as sad or pathetic, but is like absolutely a real person who was alive and talking in 1967. And and if you want to know the, the struggles and self-delusions and bitternesses and failures of uh, someone from that period... Um, just unfiltered by a heterosexual ser- framework or, or or series of preconceptions. I mean, you can say that the camera was was heterosexual, but it's him. Like you're you're seeing him, and in my hustler, you're seeing these guys, and you're seeing Fire Island from fifty years ago. And even if what you don't end up with at the end of either of those movies is a takeaway that is primarily about pride or liberation you end up in each case with like a completely invaluable piece of gay history which to me is a form of liberation i would say absolutely right yeah too too often the the discourse around pride um and within art and within cinema that really flourished after new new queer cinema in the late 80s and early 90s too often it invalidates for a lot of people what came before so it invalidates the difficulties and the struggles of gay people in, in many decades before and there really is no pride without shame there i mean everything is all combined in, in one so and what's fascinating about the series is that a lot of these movies that are being shown are um, often films that have been considered bad or uh, films that we're supposed to reject so we can now live in this supposedly perfect time so th- so now you re- and when that happens you realize that it's all a lie <laughs> to a certain extent. I mean, there's just so much left to accomplish politically and socially. And, and, and to say that there was this time when everything was bad and now everything is great is to, yeah, invalidate lives, people, lives that are still going on. And, um, lives that happen in non-metropole cities on coasts, basically, like in, right. in, in, in outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, the worst thing you can do with any movie any piece of culture, really, but it happens a lot with movies is to walk in, viewing it through a lens of, you know, God, I can't believe that these people from 1967 were so stupid that they didn't even take the gender studies course I took last year. <laughs> you know, why these don't, pronouns why are right, appalling. This is, you know, um, you know, where are the trans women of color in tea and sympathy? Like, don't don't go down that road. You know, like just just. Try as hard as you can to walk in as if you are walking in in the year and the moment that movie was made. And you'll have, you know, it doesn't at all mean you should excuse everything as being a product of its time because that's not the case. And and, and in some of these cases, you know, there was among uh, gay communities loud opposition to the the yeah. depictions in these movies. I mean, it's it's not that they were all received, you know, uncomplainingly in their moment. But you have to try to at least understand that moment. Right. 
And I think what you're getting at is that it's asking you to engage in a different type of spectatorship. And it's like, it, it's not necessarily taking you back to the time that these were made, but it's asking you to do what those people had, you know, like people watching them at the time had to do, which is like, okay, I am appraising, I am taking apart the natural suspension of disbelief or whatever, like passive uh, reception of these films. So I'm rejecting certain aspects. I'm heightening aspects that the filmmaker maybe didn't want me to, didn't consider, you know, didn't even consider including, like, that's what makes going to the movies fun. And that's me. what makes a really well curated series. Yes. yes. Um, so if you're watching, there's a short called Geography of the Body that's mm. in here. And I can't remember, I don't know if you guys saw that. I can't remember the name of the filmmaker. It's just seven minutes. It was from the early, from the early 40s, 1943. A Willard Moss. Um, and it's just close-ups, extreme, almost grotesque close-ups of the human body, mostly male, um, so that um, the, the crease of an elbow, where the elbow meets the arm, mm -hmm. looks sort of sexual, looks like genitals, and, and um, you know, body hair so, so tight that it becomes wiry and sort of profane. That is included here. It's not necessarily a queer film in any way, but when it's paired with other films that are of, the, of a similar sensibility, mm -hmm. it, 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 it adds to this overall this idea of cinema and what cinema means and, and how we will look and how cinema can represent the body and how it all kind of attributes to one larger philosophical idea about the body. On a non-experimental level, I just wanted to say that one film I really loved in terms of teaching you a new way to look, which I think is what you're talking about, is this Pasolini movie, Love Meetings, which I almost wish could kind of play on a continuous loop as the rest of this <laughs> festival unspools because it's uh, it is a pretty straight up documentary about 90 minutes from I think 1963 or 64 in which he interviews people in Italy just ordinary people in Italy usually on the street usually in crowds about their attitudes about uh, not just homosexuality, but prostitution, sexual development, any any of what he calls sexual abnormality. How babies are made. How to babies children. are made, which is how it starts. Yes. Um, whether a woman should be a virgin when she gets married. Whether divorce is okay, which was at the moment a huge question in Italy. And you know, at first when you're watching it, you almost can't not patronize it. You like what you're seeing is uh, a a bunch of attitudes that he in 1964 thought were ridiculously dated and and you know 53 years has not improved them but as the movie goes on and if you kind of open yourself to it for the whole 90 minutes what you see is just that so much of this comes down to people wrestling with what they know what they don't know what they don't understand what they haven't figured out yet what they've only imagined in terms of other people. I mean, there's one long sequence in which he asks men, do you view homosexuals with pity or with disgust? And you can roll your eyes that those are the only two options, but I found it actually moving to look at these guys as they tried to work out the answer to a question they had never even asked themselves. Right. And that's almost a good thing to keep in mind whenever you watch one of these movies in the series that that like people are watching them to try to get questions answered and sometimes they're making them to try to answer questions and and here the the other film that sort of we might want to talk about is Glenn or Glenda which very obviously wants to teach us something right and it's sort of um presented as sort of like a, a PSA on what we would now call trans people but obviously the the film uh, sort of refers to as transvestites and it seems much more patronizing and, and I think it's because it comes from a position of a real earnestness but it's a failed I I, I see it as sort of a failed project or a, fra a failed film in, in in many ways in that in wanting to find sympathy and in wanting to sort of elicit that sympathy and in sort of trying so hard hard actually doesn't give its audience as much credit and you know it, it's one of those things where we might ask like what if it's 1953 you know ed wood is trying to sort of make a case for himself and make a case for sort of uh, a lot of issues that he may have been wrestling with but it's interesting that it, it, it becomes so the code disappears and i think in something the the aesthetics and the actual form of the film uh, sort of ends up failing it I, I I mean I really like Glenn or Glenda. I feel like it's just working within this vernacular that it really can't escape. But within that 
it's Ed Wood, right? Right. So, well, that's, yeah, exactly. like throw any sort of uh, like normal aesthetic rules out the door. Right. It's it's, it's 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 a it's a it's as B as it comes. I mean, he's been unfairly called the worst filmmaker of all time. Who knows what that really means? I mean, we could say that about anyone we want. I mean, I won't tell. I won't. The say director some of, of the Stonewall. Names. I won't say some. <laughs> of the, right. I won't say some names of people who I think maybe. <laughs> The worst filmmaker of all time may be somebody who's very adept with a camera. Really? May have a really big budget. Yeah. Um, so it's a little unfair what we <laughs> said about Ed Wood. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it's it's functioning within this very cheap, very um, unsophisticated B movie vernacular. But within that, it happens upon something really empathetic. I'm very impressed with that movie, as uh, completely bonkers as it as it is. I mean, and there's just the, and talk about like we said about who killed Teddy Bear. The movie stops at one point, uh, not for a physique pictorial, but for a lesbian bondage dream fantasy, <laughs> just cause. <laughs> and I just think that's it's it's saying so much about the kinds of things you could represent within certain. Uh, parameters in the 1950s right. and he and also it's like you have to think of who the audience was for this this was part of like these crazy block bookings and these exploitation theaters so it's like again if you're taking you're taking what's like as you said what's essentially uh, an educational film a psa and then you're sticking it in a in a context where it's like there are movies about giant ants getting blown up by radiation it's right it, it's, where else were they going to put that movie exactly yeah and, and, and that and it, again it's like there's these I don't know. We could do we could do a whole podcast about Ed. We, we probably should but about these like cross codes and like all these all these different factors that make his films uh, the the crazy way that they are. But but throughout and Tim Burton's uh, film about Ed Wood totally hits on this. Always the earnestness. Always this very big like very sweetness at the even though he's padding it with B B roll of like bison or whatever. <laughs> and Bella Lugosi. And Bella Lugosi. Right. Good and friend he's, like, Bella. Weird interludes. <laughs> Um, and I, I know one of the other things that I think, like when we look back on these films, uh, or one of the things that really struck me in like rewatching a bunch of these was the earnestness mm-hmm. and the sincerity, uh, which uh, I think sometimes we're very quick to diminish or demean and think that, you know, since they're so sincere, they couldn't obviously be telling us anything new. Uh, and I think in the constellation of films that are being presented here, uh, I think the opposite is true in the, in that earnestness and that sincerity something is shining through and that we don't need an ironic pose. We don't need to be um, sort of looking afar or aside or in subtext or like Mm -hmm. finding different positionalities in order to get at it. But sometimes if you're just staring it straight on, um, something um, I think rather extraordinary can come through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also really tough to walk in with a purely ideological intent to view like if you if you try to boil these movies down to are they saying something good about gay people or are they saying something bad about gay people a lot of these movies are going to thwart you because the answer is both plus other stuff (laughs) and maybe neither like you know they're 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 the the products of not only the cultural and social attitudes of the moment they were made, but of individual filmmaker obsessions and of uh, in the studio in the case of the studio movies star needs and and in the case of the more experimental movies passions that connect to the other work sometimes in other genres that that the artist created. So I think there are very few of them that land incredibly firmly in the positive message uh, or the opposite, you know, this is evil and should be condemned uh, categories. It's, it's not a great way to look at the this set of really interesting films, I think. Or anything. Pro- probably so. <laughs> yeah. um, Maybe cruising. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you hit upon a, a good point in there too, which was that unlike many repertory series, this is not auteur based. This is not director based. Mm. So you have to like, and you've been saying Violet, you have to bring a different kind of set of expectations. It's about your viewership. It's about what you bring to it and what you think the, the author and our artist is bringing to it. But it's really kind of fascinating. We have John Huston, we have Pasolini, we have Hitchcock, we have Minnelli. 
We have Aldrich. Janae. Um, we have Al- <laughs> and we have Alice Guy Blachet. Yes. We have Jean Janet. We have Dorothy Arzner. I mean, these nothing could connect these people <laughs> other than this series, <laughs> and that's sort of fascinating um, and 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 rather exciting because if you there was there was a John Huston series at Film Society a couple of years ago, very recently. Mm-hmm. So watching Reflections in a Golden Eye in that series is very different than watching it in this series, and um, I, I I think people aren't used to watching movies this way, and so yeah, what does it mean that John Huston? That you know, barrel-chested man's man has a movie here w- in which Marlon Brando is lusting after Robert Forster. What <laughs> introducing we, Robert Forster, no less. Introducing Robert Forster. Yes. That's really fascinating. I think that it it just yes, it will. If you want to be a tourist about it, it will say, well, here's a new here's a new wrinkle. Mm-hmm. I've never thought about Houston this way before, and and it, it's it's um it's it, you can take it as a surprisingly sensitive film. Or you could take it as the ultimate homophobic film. It's however you want to read that movie, but it but it's it's more interesting to talk about that movie being on the cusp of Stonewall, say, right. whatever that idea is, than to talk about that movie being on the cusp of the Bible in the beginning, or you know, yeah, <laughs> whichever, yeah. whichever came first. And also, considering that film in this series, it's like, well, why did he, ca- why, why Liz Taylor? Like having, like her, like including her, having her in, in that particular role, I mean, obviously Carson McCullers was good friends with uh, Tennessee Williams, and this, I mean, if you, if you weren't looking closely, you're like, wasn't that a Tennessee Williams? Because it's a total that it's very much within that universe or within that shameful Southern <laughs> honor based well, universe. We could talk about Elizabeth Taylor for a while, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I don't Forever. Know, just sidetrack, but you brought up Cotton Hodge and Roof earlier. So yeah. it's, has, has there been a lot written? I don't know about Elizabeth Taylor as being consistently cast as the wife of either impotent or probably gay men. Right. I mean, she, she is like the most gay adjacent major yeah. golden age movie star in history between her friendship with Montgomery Clift and her right. on-screen relationship with Montgomery Clift and Cat on a Hutch and Roof and Reflections. I mean... And Virginia Woolf has aspect, the impotence. So, yeah. well, I mean, there's... Yeah. And also the fact that Virginia Woolf was openly discussed when the play opened as being an encoded uh, piece about two gay men, even though Albie always said mm-hmm. that was not true. Mm-hmm. You know... Um, uh, Albie, sorry, he gets really mad if you say Albie. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor's presence to gay men in this movie was itself a signifier. That's part of the content. And and also, frankly, Brando, mm-hmm. um, who, who was much more open about understanding that men, including himself, could be eroticized on camera. I mean, Brando certainly knew what he had been to people, to gay men in uh, movies like Streetcar. Mm-hmm. So... And this is a really, you know, that movie in particular is very interesting, as, as you said, right on the cusp of um, Stonewall, in that it starts making that argument that the perversion isn't homosexuality, the perversion is repressed homosexuality. It's not an argument that's made with a great deal of compassion, but you, you start seeing it over and over again in movies right at the end of pre-Stonewall and at the beginning of the post-Stonewall period, the idea that it's holding it down that's what's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Mm. And um, again, talking about the, the intentional perhaps a slight falseness of the before and after Stonewall idea. Uh, we haven't talked about Boys in the Band, which is not included here yeah. because it happened to come out a year after Stonewall, mm-hmm. but it's based on a play that was written before Stonewall and it's directed by William Friedkin, who directed Cruising. Yes. Um, always a true ally. Um, <laughs> and um, No, it's interesting that that's not included. Right. It's kind of arbitrary that it isn't, but it's just one of those, um, uh, it's, a, it's a historical weirdness. The boys and the man is not here. Right. And the, the other one that it sort of falls into that same category of like it's based on something that predates Stonewall but comes up to afterwards is Myra Breckenridge. Oh, yeah. Which I feel also feeds into the very the various sort of transgressive energies uh, and sort of giving us a this, uh, right, Raquel Welch is sort of this, this trans monster of a woman who is very hard to read in this, even as a, even as a pre-Stonewall or post-Stonewall. It's like, right, it's like 1968 or 69. It's like right at that moment. But it does show you that the, the the signifier and the like the originary myth of sort of that as soon as sixty nine hits something changes, is just just that a myth. Well, and in some ways, if you, I mean, first of all, I would love to make a pitch not for a post Stonewall series as a follow up <laughs> to this great series, but I think there is a great like 
post Stonewall but pre gay cinema series. Like 1969 to 1980 or 81 is a separate period in gay movie history. Absolutely. It's not like there's pre Stonewall and then everything that followed Stonewall was in one category. But also, uh, you know, in terms of what arbitrarily falls on either side of the line, like the movie that you could say is right on the top of the wall between these two eras is Midnight Cowboy mm. um, from 1969, probably came out within a month or two of Stonewall, um, based on a book obviously written well before Stonewall, and is both a step, a, like a huge step forward in terms of studio depiction of homosexual acts, and uh, in many ways has one foot firmly planted in pre-Stonewall ideas about about that but and are in a sense aren't um minette cowboy and myra breckenridge both of them were rated x when they were released aren't they um films that both showed a certain progression but also were probably too visible in a sense and then scared everybody off from doing it for a very long time i i can't really think of any mainstream films after that, for the next decade at least. But there was also, I mean, I think you have to keep in mind, there was also like this big switch that happened where it's like, okay, so New Hollywood, very, right. you know, very heterosexual, very white, very masculine comes mm. in and sort of like, you know, redefines what Hollywood was via, you know, the Roger Corman school. And it sort of squeezed out, I would say, that sort of that sort of experimentation That's, of that strangeness. There, I'm sure there's a lot to that because, um, you know, Schlesinger is not New Hollywood. Right. And um, Myra Breckenridge was... Who directed Myra Breckenridge? I know Rex Reed was in it. Yeah, that's, all I, that's, that's a whole um, movie for me. Directed it. Well, it wasn't one of the new, exciting new American right. cinema. Yeah, so the, the, you're right. It's a, it was a very masculine, uh, very uh, white male movement. But it does seem like movies like Meyer Breckenridge, which, which was a colossal disaster also financially, yes. um, which also has this insane male rape in it. Sorry, a, a Meyer, Raquel Welch wearing a strap on, <laughs> raping a very hot young man. It was the kind of thing that you weren't going to see again. Right. <laughs> um, but <laughs> of course, <laughs> you can chalk it up to the film's failures. You know, obviously, audiences don't want this. It's a gigantic bomb, so they could easily never do it again. But it, but it still starts. Like it, it starts becoming inevitable because the year after Midnight Cowboy, you have um, Sunday Bloody Sunday. Uh, Schlesinger again, right? And um, Larry Kramer's script for Women in Love, which you know the mm. the, the wrestling scene between <laughs> Oliver Reed and Alan Bates is like as big a moment True. in the history of gay cinema as anything that is yeah. not exactly gay, but is really kind that's of really gay. gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, but, that's I true. I mean, well, took it as really gay. Yeah. I mean, well, and Ken Russell, but then also it's like Ken Russell is sort of like a you know throw out any again like sort of throw out any rules because i mean the, the devils is also right. frank in all depictions of sexuality not just straight i was why i watched that last time but anyway <laughs> the devils yes in what format what, i, I mean you, which version I, oh i have like the bfi dvd that they released a couple of years oh. ago so it's uncut wow well, super widescreen good for you you can see all the stuff <laughs> so yeah i mean but those are british films sunday bloody right. sunday and and woman in love and the devils so there was there was a little more license i think but i yeah the american cinema was uh what, what I, I mean a very natural thing was what 73 um so there were there were independent films more underground films that were that were a little more open i mean jotu ll mm. chantal ackerman's amazing movie which i just saw again at BAM last week, which has a very lengthy lesbian sex scene in it. It was also probably, would be in the series that you're kind of pitching. So yeah, fascinating things are happening in the in the 70s, but it's it's still pretty under the radar, I think, right? Everything before the new queer cinema really explodes still feels a little, like Making Love is another example of a movie from the 80s that because it was such a colossal failure, the studios were very a easily able to say, well, we won't do that again. Nobody wants to see this kind of thing, right. which actually isn't a bad movie. Making well, the, love. Right. And Arthur I think what Heller. you're talking I think what you're talking about you can see it in African American led films in Hollywood where it's like oh, that wasn't fair. You know, people didn't like it. We we don't have to do this again. It didn't sell well mm -hmm. overseas. So let's not try it again. Or like we you know female female lead or female director like oh uh, no let's not do it again. And it's but, just But at the same time <laughs> you start in the 70s getting stuff like the gay best friend in movies. Mm. You know, like in studio movies. Like it starts you know 
You also get incredibly homophobic uh, depictions of gay characters in in action movies. Mm-hmm. But Dirty but, Harry. But things inch forward. You know, this TV movie from uh, 1972 or 73 called That Certain Summer, which is about a father who leaves his wife and moves in with a man and then tries to uh, mend his relationship with his gay son. It's viewed by tens of millions of people the night that it aired. So these topics, these themes, these characters they do start pushing themselves forth in in various formats and various you know everything from experimental to foreign to auteur based to kind of anonymous studio stuff i think there were many gay characters in like Irwin Allen disaster movies, but <laughs> oh, I'd be terrified to think of what that would be. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. And it's, surely someone was on one of those planes. You know? <laughs> My God, there were stewards. But actually, you know. Neil Simon would would um, integrate some gay characters into his films. Not not always in the most um, laudatory ways, but it was still it was part of the idea of visibility, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like you know. Go, if we go back and look at the filmography of an actor like James Coco, you'll see that like a lot of those parts were sort of Marsha Mason had a gay best friend, you know, in, in one of those Neil Simon movies. Michael so. Caine in California Suite. And, and then The Goodbye Girl has that really strange... The gay Richard III. The, the gay third Richard III. Yeah. Well, the, who, who, well he's, the, he's, the, he's, the, he's, a, he's a very flouncy, trouncy, pansy type director, but he also wants to turn Richard III into a gay character. Right. So then Richard Dreyfus starts to play a gay version of Richard III. It's very weird. Yeah, the, I mean, it, it ranges, like, gay characters are more visible, but they're more visible in every way from, like, super reactionary depictions or treated as punchlines to treated with, you know, a, a degree of sympathy um, and humanity, if not agency. Mm. We're inventing a whole film series that isn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> a natural progression. That was, yeah, it was all excellent. But I think this is a good place to end now. So, um, uh, but before we close, in the spirit of Last 10 Films, I'd like to go around and each of us should name one film we saw recently that we liked. I will go first. Um, I already mentioned that I saw The Devils last night, so I will say a different film. I saw Malcolm X again recently because it was just on HBO Go. And uh, that film was just amazing and fantastic and um formally riveting and doing things that i don't see you don't really see happening in mainstream narrative filmmaking and it was really exciting to watch that again and just like get really um fired up um i guess uh, i'll pick another chantal ackerman film because i've been trying to go to as many of those as possible i saw one of her really odd ones, and odd for being sort of mainstream, uh, Couch in New York. Yes. Um, her 1996 mainstream rom-com with Juliette Binoche and Ju- William Hurt. Yes. <laughs> um, obviously, the film is still legibly an Ackerman film. It's about spaces. It's about it, it's it's about how two people can inhabit a space, even though the space is is actually completely separate. It's about two different apartments mm-hmm. and how the people they do is an apartment swap, and how they start to fall in love with each other from afar it's very interesting but at the same time it's completely goofy there's there's a golden retriever that swims across the pond in central park to get to its owner and, <laughs> i mean it, it's really uh, it's almost like a deconstruction of the rom-com but i highly enjoyed it i've been over at tribeca so i feel like i have a lot of things to choose from but the the one movie that i watched this week that i will i want to recommend the meddler uh, with mm. susan sarandon which is about it has a, a horrible title, and I, I think it's a very unfortunate title because I think it sells the movie sort of short. But it's a movie about grief, and it's a movie about sort of uh, dealing with depression. Is a woman who's lost her husband, and her daughter has lost uh, her father, and they're sort of both coping uh, in sunny Los Angeles because, you know, why not create the sort of jarring uh, juxtaposition of the sunny weather with your sort of gray skies? But uh, she's fantastic, and Rose Byrne yeah, is fantastic, and so... Uh, I enjoyed it more than the title will lead you to believe. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many the titles at Tribeca. I'm like, what am I? I don't even, I can't even keep track in my crotchety old age. That's my, that's my (laughs) point. I'm going to punt and because I've not seen something lately, because I haven't seen a lot of movies lately that I would highly recommend. So I'm going to pretend 
that the second season of this Amazon TV series, Catastrophe, oh, yeah. which if you watch it end to end is three hours, so I'm going to count it as a movie, right. um, mm-hmm. is the best movie I've seen lately. If, if, you, if you binge it, which I recommend because it's totally bingeable and, and you want to see uh, a, a really funny, sad, poignant, beautifully acted, beautifully written by its two stars series uh, about two people who probably should not have gotten married trying very hard to make a marriage and parenthood work um i totally recommend catastrophe if i have to pick a movie i'll give you randomly michael haneke's film cachet which i had never seen until a couple of weeks ago i really really loved and i don't know why i hadn't seen it but i i found uh, all of its depiction of surveillance and of the idea of watching and of being watched and of living in what you think is privacy and having it turn out not to be privacy and of that all hiding a guilty secret, a guilty personal secret or a guilty national secret felt unbelievably resonant to me. It, it, it truly feels like a movie that could have been made out of last week's headlines. Well, thank you all for coming. This was excellent. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.